Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital pertaining to consumer-facing startups. That's both consumer technology and physical goods. We're interested in learning what the world's leading VCs look for in founders and opportunities, as well as learning from venture-backed B2C founders who have grown their businesses to incredible heights. For those who attended our virtual summit last week about CPG, thank you. We had a blast putting it together, and we hope you all enjoyed it. We certainly did. Our guest today is Han Shen. Han is the founding partner of iFly.VC, an early-stage seed VC fund based in San Francisco Bay Area. The fund follows a sector-thesis-driven approach and aims to build a concentrated portfolio with meaningful value-add to entrepreneurs. We discuss the different sectors he's focused in, how he became a VC, and how he thinks about uncovered opportunities. Without further ado, here's Han. Han, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? Good. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks for having me. I've listened to quite a few episodes of your podcast. I just loved it. And now I'm so glad to be invited to be here with you. Thank you. Really, really excited to have this conversation. So tell me a little bit about the beginning. What initially attracted you to venture capital? Good question. So that was a long story all the way going back to day one when I first came to the United States. It was 1998. I graduated from college in China. I went to Chicago to get my PhD in chemistry. And when I finished in 2002, I went to a company called Rome and Haas in Philadelphia. It used to be the largest specialty chemical company in the United States, $8 billion revenue a year. I was part of this emerging technologies department. So by today's fancy term, you would probably say that was the internal incubator. So every year we went through a bunch of projects, new ideas, and I was very fortunate to have a couple hits that yielded not only four issued patents that created me as a key inventor, but also I went through the process to see how the idea went all the way to become a commercial success. But then I realized how much or how little I knew about the commercial aspect of innovation, which would be equally important. So 2007, I decided to go to Wharton to get my MBA. By the time I graduated in 2009, you know, obviously financial crisis and everything, but I also figured the best way to utilize my background, the knowledge and the passion for innovation would be to give a shot to get into venture capital. And if I saw some startup along the journey, I might just join them. If I had my own idea, I might start something. But venture capital in Silicon Valley just attracted me to move all the way from the East Coast after graduation. So that was the initial point for me to give it a try. Then I didn't realize, you know, when I did become an entrepreneur later on, seven years later in 2016, it was not to start an operating company, but really to start a a new fun iFly. But I can get back to more details later. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I mean, so it seemed like your initial attraction or throughout your career, your attraction was just innovation and how innovation actually happens and also being able to commercialize innovation. So I guess you've led me to my next question. Talk to me about you being an entrepreneur and starting iFly.vc and how that all came together. Yeah, so I guess before iFly, I was working for a few other funds in 
San Francisco Bay Area, including Vantage Point, that used to manage $4.6 billion, and they were the Series C leading investor of Tesla. They made lots of bets in the clean tech space, and then also became the first hire on the investment team at a new fund in 2012 called Formation 8, where the team made investment in some phenomenal companies like Oculus, Wish, and so on. It was a firm where I grew further my investment skill to, you know, not only identify a few new spots for the fund, but also I had a couple of my own deal sourcing experience, board exposure, managing the exit. And so that was a fantastic learning curve. In late 2015, which was, you know, very public, the founders of Formation 8 had just very different areas of interest, stage, even geography. So they decided to split to pursue different directions. I think they, they handled the split very, very well. I have to say this. I give them a lot of credits for that. But for me, the question was, should I join one of the new firms or should I do something different? Now, obviously, that just probably was my DNA or something that just kicked in about why don't I give a shot to see whether some of the investment strategy I had thought about back then could materialize independently out of a new fund under a new umbrella. So I started winding down my board management from the Formation 8 portfolio companies in early 2016, started talking to LPs, and did the first close of Fund 1 in September 2016. So that just got everything started. Nothing followed a textbook, nothing followed a quote-unquote business plan. There was a lot of trial and error. But you know, once that started, every little step of progress just kept me energized and motivated to keep on going. And then I realized, gosh, you know, four or five years have already passed by. But you know, I'm, I'm glad to choose this path because it definitely fits my passion, not only being an entrepreneur, but I see that I share this journey with the founders and portfolio companies we invest in as much as those founders and their teams grow and their business grow, iFly has also been growing. And me as a GP, as a funding partner of the fund, I've also grown a lot as I think so. No, that's that's terrific. I think some things that I think can be overlooked and also have been overlooked by me too, because I've interviewed investors that started their own company and you know raised capital, had an exit, and then launched their own fund. I asked some questions about when they were entrepreneurs and said, well, to be honest, I feel like I'm still an entrepreneur since running this fund was extremely entrepreneurial. Sometimes I feel like it gets lost in the mix in terms of there's a lot of relations and parallels to launching a business and launching a fund. You're still having to raise raise money. You're still kind of learning and being scrappy every day. So yeah, what have been some of your learnings like since just starting your own fund with iFly just through these past uh, four or five years? That's an excellent question. I think a key takeaway is, you know, again, just going back to this notion that a new GP, a startup fund, it's just like running a startup. I do believe every startup has to be very clear about what it is a strategy, what is kind of a differentiation and what's the path to move forward. The same kind of set of questions that we, you know, we as GPs or investors ask entrepreneurs all the time. And as new managers, if you will, we have to ask those questions ourselves just truthfully, right? And when I entered the arena of uh, you know, managing a micro VC, it was already crowded. I heard from my friends at Silicon Valley Bank or Republic Bank that they track more than a thousand fund managers in VC with AUM under $50 million. So I was one of the over 1,000 managers to the LPs, to entrepreneurs, to everybody else. So what would be the path that worked out for me? So there are choices to make here. My philosophy is if I simply follow other people's steps and I turn out to be even incrementally better, that might not work out for me because you know other people have already found their own beachhead that fit their own strength. And if I simply follow other people's or other fund's steps, I don't think the chance for success would increase for iFly or me as a GP. So what I decided to really find in a playbook for iFly. And in the context of early stage VC, as you can tell, you know, Silicon Valley or any other geographies have all kinds of enthusiasm about tech. And every year there seems to be a new theme of uh, this tech or that tech. You know, again, I'm passionate about all tech related opportunities, but is that kind of a new wave or the kind of a buzz? the right way to think about opportunities. And even further, it, when, when everybody talk about a trend, everybody talk about a buzzword, is that actually good to early stage investment? 
Probably not because so many funds chase those deals or investments and obviously valuation gets high and lots of funds trying to get into the cap table with a small token amount. And then, and obviously, you know, if you have a massive portfolio with a small ownership in each piece, the question I have to ask myself, if I do that, do I really have one, the conviction? Where can I find that conviction? Do I really understand that sector, the opportunity? And two, after the investment, if I tell people, oh, I'm so much into value add, am I able to allocate enough resource and even time bandwidth to deliver the value add? Right? So what I decided to do, okay, I'll probably just try a different path. Let's focus on a few buckets of opportunities. And by, by the way, my, my viewpoint is, that the landscape of uh, startup innovation is just never homogeneous. Even for the best of the best investors, we all have 24-7. And our knowledge, our exposure has all kinds of uh, strength and weakness, right? So nobody can cover everything. And at the same time, the entire landscape of innovation is heterogeneous enough that are always these pockets of opportunities that might look underserved, underappreciated, unglamorous, whatever you call it, but they may not be visible to the majority of the people out there. And my job or early stage VC's job is to identify this non-obviousness in the crowded space. And obviously, you know, it takes homework, it takes a lot of research. That's why, you know, we constantly develop and refine our investment thesis. And when we don't see anything exciting, that's okay. Maybe it's just not a fit, maybe we, we don't see it, maybe we don't understand. But that's okay. We don't have to invest for a sake of a logo to put on our website to tell the LP, hey, look, we have a deal flow there. But at the same time, if we see something, we come to a conviction. You know, we are just happy to be, you know, contrarian, right? And we are happy to be the only investor in the round when we have that conviction. We are happy to write a couple million dollars to back the founders that we love to work with. And when we do that, you know, obviously, you know, for early stage fund like our size, we don't have a lot of checks to write. That's also why when we construct this portfolio, it's so-called concentrated portfolio. That means we don't have a lot of companies. For fund one at iFly, we invested across three years. Uh, the total number of uh, investment has not even exceeded 10. Right? So fund two just started investing in Q2. We led to investment this year during COVID, but the goal for Fund 2 is probably going to be the same, you know, 10-ish companies, 10 to 12 companies at most across a period of three years. But when we do that, it's not going to be hard to tell founders and everybody that we are super motivated to work with these entrepreneurs to help them succeed. And we are super motivated to bring our resource energy to help them. You know, because we can't also afford the energy bandwidth to do that, right? So I think all these pieces come together, you know, going back to, again, 2016, 2017, during the early days of uh, iFly, I figure it, it would be just probably a better fit for us to follow this approach. Again, I want to say, I don't, I don't want to indicate that, oh, you know, other people's approach is wrong or bad. There's no such a thing. Uh, it's all, all about the fit for the startup to think about what is the path to take so that you can match that with a strength, right? So, so that's how we think about investment, how we think about building iFly as a startup fund. First of all, really appreciate that. And I agree, you know, our previous guests said on the show, there's no one way to skin a cat, just as there's no one way, there's no correct way to invest. Everyone has their own approach. And it seems like in your approach, you're not a generalist or opportunistic when maybe looking at what sectors are currently hot or what have you, it seems like you're much more of a thematic investor. Is that fair to say? Yeah, so that's correct. And that's also just because, again, when we think about what we can do and do best, what I wanted to do is to define a couple pockets or segment, if you will, and go very deep about it. And when we get deep enough, it helps us develop the kind of insight at early stage to identify the upcoming opportunities and the founders that may not look attractive yet to the majority of the investor circle. But then the reality is if we try to cover across a range of you know, cybersecurity, medical device, consumer products, e-commerce, I think I'll be lying to you by saying, oh, I can really do it so well in every single sector, right? So what we decided to do is to focus on a couple of themes. But again, you know, the, the theme here, as you mentioned, uh, the theme for us right now going forward for Fund2 especially is to go after these underserved demographics. We're talking about a trillion dollars of uh, consumer spending shift in the United States. Right? We can get back into the details about the theme. But once we look into that theme across the value chain that covers e-commerce, retail, supply chain, logistics, you know, consumer products, it's 
actually very helpful for us to, to look at consumer products or e-commerce at the same time to gain even more exposure or understanding about the problems and challenges facing the logistics and supply chain. Right. So when you go back and forth across that theme or value chain, it actually helps us even review more opportunities because all these pieces are interconnected. So again, going back to this point of being fit on the theme of the thematic approach just fits us better. Now, later on, uh, for fund three or future funds, when we grow bigger with more people, now I'm definitely open and we should actually be open to other approaches as well. I love that. I mean, so it seems like when you talk about a theme, like, for example, e-commerce, like you, how you're thinking about it, it's not just, I don't mean just, but you aren't just only looking out for at the top in terms of like brands and products themselves. You're also looking at all of the infrastructure, the supply chain that goes into e-commerce and looking at it much more broadly in some ways, but also like the complete verticalized in terms of, okay, what platform do you purchase on fulfillment and you know all of the all of the other parts of e-commerce so that's that's really interesting yeah yeah so exactly so now we we have made a couple of investment in e- e-commerce but so far we have not invested in uh, standalone companies that handle supply chain management but reality is all these e-commerce companies we have worked with I have a very important piece in supply chain, right? So sometimes if it's a startup that I might not find the right fit for us to invest, but I'm more than happy to just connect the dots, make some intro out of goodwill, either to our portfolio companies as a potentially a problem solver, solution provider, or other friends in the circle. So with that, not only we build our own karma, if you will, but also just, again, just keep on refreshing our knowledge because the fun part of being a VC is this constant learning curve. I just love it. As much as we learn, we love to share the knowledge with our portfolio companies. We love to share with the other entrepreneurs. And uh, who knows, right now, sometimes can be serendipitous. But um, if you do follow a theme, from my perspective, it, it helps increase the chance of finding something early when it still looks just you know, non-obvious. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I love kind of picking apart thematic versus opportunistic, not that it's a versus or this or that. But, you know, I've heard folks that are more generalists say, like why they make the argument that they are generalists over being, you know, very thematic or focused on one particular area is because they feel like if they go so deep on an area that they almost are able to actually miss the area because what they're waiting for in the opportunity might have already came. And since they're really actually trying to learn from the insight from the founder of something that they never thought about before. Right, right. Yeah. Again, you know, I think if I manage 450, uh, excuse me, 400 or 500 million dollar fund size. I almost have to be more generous than a theme-based investment approach. But now, you know, our AUM is roughly uh, 50 million dollars. And again, just going back to this topic of fit, I think it fits us well to go after and then focus on a certain theme. And that also keeps on evolving. And uh, you know, every year we still have to refresh and reassess what makes sense for iPhone. Again, going back to startup notion. We are a startup, right? We just have to keep on moving, evolve, evolving. And that's the fun part of being a startup fund manager as well. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So I know we talk about e-commerce, but what are some like specifically, or how do you think about trends or sectors that you're interested in, in your approach? Yeah, so the uh, short answer is e-commerce is exciting because it really helps connect the dots between demand and supply in a different way from what incumbents have done. I mean, Amazon is obviously such a respectable company in e-commerce. But when you look at the last 10 years, there have been still all kinds of e-commerce companies coming from everywhere. The rationale that I would say is whenever you have a gap between demand and supply that cannot be sufficiently or properly addressed by incumbent, Amazon or not, someone else will come to play and find a better way to fill that gap. So that's why the evolution in e-commerce will just be constant. And uh, then the question is how to identify those opportunities and what makes really sense for entrepreneurs and uh, VCs to pursue. So my view is it takes a combination of both market insights and technology enablement. I'm not a big fan to invest in companies that just simply talk about all the, the jargons of, of tech, of this tech or that tech. No, you, you really have to bring the tech into practice that can make a difference, whether it's uh, cheaper, better or whatsoever, right? And to deliver that value to both the sellers and buyers. And then on to market insights. There are a couple 
trends or directions I really feel excited about. Altogether, uh, we describe it as a trillion dollar paradigm shift in consumer spending across the United States. You know, every year, the consumers in the United States spend about $13 trillion, and that's a big chunk of GDP. But the growth is not that exciting overall. It's like a just GDP growth at 2-3% overall. But when you look at the breakdown, when you look at different market or consumer drivers, there are certain pieces that can grow way faster than the others. So some of those drivers that we are excited about include ethnic minorities, immigrants-related needs, underbanked, and those residents who live in the remote communities. And I'll go through this short list real quick. We have over 100 million Americans that are ethnic minorities of all kinds of origin of culture, background, and the mainstream business does not slice or dice the way to serve their needs. So in this case, people will come up with ways to do it. We can talk about the example using one of our portfolio companies called Wheat. They go after the Asian grocery space in the U.S. We can talk about that in a few minutes to illustrate some of the, the thoughts as an example. And then how about underbanks? Again, you know, we have uh, 60, 70 million people here, regardless of you know, ethnic minority or not, um, uh, cultural background. You know, they don't necessarily have low income, but for whatever reasons, they are not, again, adequately served by their banks. They are charged by all kinds of fees, not receiving the best quality service. So again, you know, there's got to be some ways to uplift their experience. Now, another pocket is, let's say, you know, you and I are living around major metropolitan areas. So Amazon Prime is like a no-brainer. It's so convenient. And there are other service providers in LA, in New York, San Francisco Bay Area. But now, Mike, if you just start driving 100 miles away from uh, LA or the Bay Area, you would be part of the country, you would be part of this nation that people don't have the convenience of accessing e-commerce or even the local store the same way as we do, right? Would there be an opportunity to serve like about 90 million Americans in those areas? in a better, cheaper way. And we don't necessarily have all the answers, but again, you know, there is a demand. There's a way to uplift the user experience for these underserved demographics as well. Right, so to me, those market drivers definitely exist strong and represent massive opportunity. And that's you know, where we spend quite a fair amount of energy, not only supporting portfolio companies already pursuing in those buckets or segments, at the same time, even for fun too, we're still looking for new opportunities associated with these uh, themes or drivers. Yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating. I really appreciate you talking about that, especially, you know, food delivery or e-commerce. Which is how you think in terms of e-commerce for the rural population of the U.S. and also the needs of people that come from different cultures and backgrounds that are often can be overlooked when it comes to building out new products in terms of the intended use. I mean, I feel like a lot of us, well, e-commerce, and of course, this happens as well with a lot of innovation. It usually goes towards those innovation, usually because it can be expensive, usually goes towards wealthy, but now it's bringing it down to make it actually accessible and available to everyone. That's awesome. I would love to talk about We. I think We is a really fascinating company. Tell me about, I know you talked a little bit about a little bit of the background, and I guess it's, as a case study, it's a really interesting example. I would just love to kind of hear about why you invest in We and the opportunity that you're seeing when it comes to you know Asian food being delivered online. Yeah, totally. So we invested in this company called We, which spells as the W-triple-E. Their website is uh, sayWe.com. So we invested in the company late 2018 as the only investor of that particular round. But we actually connected with the founder back in 2016. And even then, for me personally, the first time I saw grocery-related investment deal, that was like back in 2014. But back then, of course, I had no idea what, what it's all about, right? So, but I got curious. I just kept on following. And uh, as I said earlier, building a investment thesis, right? And then 2016, the company already launched. Their metrics were strong, but they had a very different approach back then. Um, going after the Asian grocery in 2016 for we meant they would find individuals across different neighborhoods in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area to organize these group buy activities. So that means, hey, Mike, you know, you're awesome. You have a lot of friends and families around your neighborhood. Why don't you organize a bunch of people to say, okay, let's have a order of, um, uh, let's say, uh, 50 salmon, right? And then with that, they accumulate all the orders and get a pretty decent discount. 
then they ship everything for you, you know, to hand out to your friends in, in your group out of your garage, right? And you know, the numbers just took off like crazy. I have to admit the metrics were very strong, even stronger than most other e-commerce startups I have seen at the similar stage. But at that point, I was kind of concerned. Uh, well, actually, first of all, you know, not only I got impressed by the metrics, but I do like the fact that they went after the Asian grocery because Asian American in this country spend about $60 billion on grocery shopping every year. But the access, the variety, price, the quality, and everything are just not the standards that we like to see yet, right? So there is opportunity to uplift the consumer experience. But then the part I got concerned with back in 2016 was if you, hey, Mike, you, you and I are awesome people. We are reliable. We work hard to deliver, to make our community members happy about the service. Great. But what if you start scaling? Would someone else, you know, somehow, you know, they, they have a busy day job. They are late for their distribution among their neighborhood members. That can really just make everybody suffer. And in fact, in 2017, uh, it just happened, you know, as a company, as we scaled this business, lots of complaints, people left and even group leaders left. It was actually very difficult. At one point, they were just about four days away from running out of cash or, or missing their payroll deadline. I didn't know all of that, but I knew back in 2017, it was very difficult. I thought I would not be surprised if this company just disappeared. But guess what? Whenever it was difficult for any startup, it would be a period for an awesome team to really shine. So at that point, the founders and the core team members showed so much tenacity. They just didn't want to give up. Many of them took their own savings, put into the companies, just wanted to keep on going. But at the same time, that's something more impressive was they had a lot of reflection on what went right and what went wrong. And the conclusion for the founders was the early success of We in 2016 was not really about this group buy model or the neighborhood kind of a distribution model. It was really about helping the target consumers, in this case, that's Asian, helping Asian Americans buy the high quality, awesome, exciting products that they cannot easily access by going to brick and mortar shop. Then the delivery on top of it is a plus. So in 2016, uh, 17, I'm sorry, they decided to just pivot. They still maintain the supply chain, but they decided to build their end-to-end -end process. They started delivering all the orders to the customers directly to the household. And uh, the offer would be, like if you hit a minimum order value of 35 bucks, you get a free delivery. And by the way, so right now they operate in San Francisco Bay Area, LA, Orange County, San Diego, Portland, Oregon, and Seattle area. And they also started operating in New Jersey, New York. So, you know, as a shameless promoter of our portfolio companies, everybody go give a try. If you like it, you know, be great. But I'll be happy to to be the uh, concierge for Mike's audience as well. But anyway, going back to 2017, the pivot was actually very, 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 very difficult. They had to struggle a lot you know, managing the, the cash flow at the same time during the pivot. Again, that was just remarkable. They did it. But 2018, not only did they survive, but also started growing again. Uh, we reconnected with the founder, the CEO, in fall 2018. And I actually was impressed. I was impressed by the story, how they survived and then started thriving again. I was impressed by the thoughtfulness of the founders to self-examine what went right and what we went wrong. And so all of those kind of traits on top of our understanding of the space uh, drove us to this conviction. So even though that particular round in December 2018, nobody else wanted to write a check but we were like, okay, you know, we'll actually, we wrote the biggest check out of uh, Fund One and uh, I joined the board. And then the business started really taking off in 2019 and further in 2020. And uh, I'll take a pause here because I'll talk a lot about the story leading to our investment. But I'm sure you have other questions about we and uh, the story after we made investment. But I'll take a pause in case you have questions. Yeah. First of all, I mean, that's quite remarkable. And I really appreciate you describing what a successful pivot looks like, but also the growing pains of even making the pivot and that managing the cash flow during the pivot was very, very tricky. How's we doing right now? 
Yeah, the company has been doing phenomenal. As I mentioned, uh, they grew beyond San Francisco Bay Area in the past year and a half, and metrics-wise, just very healthy and strong. This year is about 6x growth year over year. Cash flow has been positive for a while, and I haven't seen the total Q3 number yet, but I can say their first half this year, actually the company level uh, has become profitable. Right? And uh, they have recruited more people at the senior level. They recruit a bunch of uh, key hires from really top-notch companies. We even brought in the former COO of uh, Netflix, Tom Dillon, to join the board as a board member. So there's a lot of exciting upgrade uh, progress within the company. But for the consumers, it's also exciting because not only they have more service areas across West Coast plus parts of East Coast, but also they kept on bringing exciting products. They still maintain the same offer, 35 bucks uh, minimum order value. You get free delivery. Like people just love it. And the repeat buy uh, ratio is like much higher than any other companies I have seen. And in terms of financing, as the company started growing, they definitely received more attention from other firms on Sand Hill and even worldwide. After our initial investment in December 2018, the past nine months, they have uh, raised additional capital, Series B and Series C. From Lightspeed, VMG, and uh, you know those both firms are phenomenal in the consumer space. There's a firm called XVC based out of uh, Beijing, China. They have a lot of experience in the consumer and the grocery space the worldwide. And then the company just closed a Series C led by DST in July this year. So overall, now I'm very excited and uh, proud of the, all the progress made by the team. That's amazing about the progress that's happened with Wee. Talk to me a little bit about, I guess, one more question on Wee. In the pivot, tell me like specifically what they had to do to go from you know neighborhoods buying collectively or streets buying collectively to try to get the price down and buying more in bulk for grocery products rather than really focusing on individual buys and having that minimum of $35. Like, what about the supply chain? Do they need to change? I'd imagine they, I know you mentioned that they need to change quite much, but I would just love to like learn a little bit more about the specifics. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing they decided to do is to build this uh, vertically integrated end-to-end process from sourcing to delivery. By contrast, there are a lot of other companies that are doing well with grocery or meal delivery. But fundamentally, when you think about it, whether it's for grocery store or restaurant, they don't have a lot of margin to give away. So if a delivery company asks for 15, 20, 30% of cut, it's actually a huge burden for the retail business, uh, considering you know their margin is already down to single digit, right? So that's why a lot of companies on the delivery only model just have to charge the consumers extra fee, right? So if you ever use those service, you know probably you have to pay extra 15, 20 bucks per order for your grocery shopping to be delivered. And uh, you know, especially this year, we all saw the uptick in volume. And not surprising, people panic during COVID. When you have no other options, you just pay up. But when business start reopening, people realize, oh, when you wear a mask, you can still sufficiently protect yourself and people go on. But when you think about the average American family that has pretty tight budget on grocery, how many such households can really afford to pay extra 15, 20 bucks per week on delivery when essentially the products are identical to your own experience when you go to a grocery store by yourself, right? So um, having said that, going back to we, so their uh, differentiation uh, or the pivot to this differentiation is across the whole kind of end-to-end process. It starts with sourcing, right? They don't go to a local, you know, Asian or Chinese or Korean grocery store, you know, take a picture and try to map everything that's uh, listed. They actually have a very unique merchandising engine driven by data. So they can source a lot of products that are not even visible at most of the grocery store offline. Right? So that, that helps attract the customers and that brings in extra value. And then second piece is they actually have a very sophisticated uh, management tool for their inventory. Again, you know, for people who are familiar with the grocery business, a cost sink for grocery business is uh, spoilage. Right? You, you don't have the infinite shelf life for perishable goods that easily take away five to 10 percentage points of the margin. But in Wee's case, their inventory turn is so high that at this point, 
the spoilage is almost down to zero, almost nothing. That's a big difference of cost savings. And when it comes to delivery, again, you know, they have built their own delivery network. They manage their own fleet of uh, drivers across all the geographies they serve. Even though they pay their drivers much better than typical, you know, on-demand or uh, ride-share drivers, their cost per delivery is still much lower because they manage to have all these scheduled delivery route that gets the number of delivery per hour just much higher. So all these pieces, if you separate them apart, every single one doesn't really stand alone. But when they are interconnected, it just makes this process very unique, different, differentiated, but to the consumer, it's also just very, very attractive. And then when it comes to merchant, it's also attractive because when you have a very high uh, turn of inventory, that means those merchants, the wholesale guys or the farms, uh, gets a very steady cash flow coming back, right? So all in all, the point here is they found this is a much better fit for their own operation. This serves their customers really nicely. They have a better way to control the end-to-end process for quality or user experience. But then from the uh, operation perspective, actually, I did not mention early on, it's not that simply because they go after the Asian grocery market, then they just succeeded, right? No, they are not the only ones, but a particular secret sauce is they do have a, I would not say an army of a software engineer, but they do have a strong team of software engineers and data analysts every single day looking at the process, looking at the data just to figure out a way to constantly improve. And that tech stack is a huge enablement for them to drive the efficiency and productivity and ultimately the margin as well. Wow. Thanks for all that detail. I mean, I really appreciate you explaining about the end-to-end platform that they built and everything. I mean, how do you think about when it comes to the future of grocery? I mean, you obviously have we, but do you think that the most successful ones that that thrive in the space are going to have to be vertically integrated eventually? Well, again, you know, there's nothing to say absolute uh, this way or that way. In this case, I do have a preference for a vertically integrated operation. Again, you know, when you think about the nature of the business, retail historically has very thin margin. You have to push, you have to move the inventory fast, right? And if you add a service on top of it, the value chain has a price cap on the top because, you know, once you start charging consumers more, they will just go to an alternative, right? And the convenience of delivery is great to some people, but you know, there's always a price tag people are willing to pay for that convenience. So it, when you increase that price cap, it's just going to self-limit the range of the uh, consumer that you can target. So that's my view that we just have to face with. So in this particular case for a grocery, I think it makes better sense to have a vertically integrated model. But having said that, I have to admit, it's not easy, right? Um, a lot of people... Say, oh gosh, you know, it, it costs a lot of money. It's uh, not easy to build. But I think the flip side is it also creates a sort of moat, right? If you are able to do it, if you know how to merchandise, how to manage the warehouse process, how to manage the fleet of drivers to deliver every single day, that alone is a moat, right? So that's why I'm also happy to share with founders and other investors that if we see founders or the, the team that can build such a, a moat, uh, it may not be a particular kind of a drug formula that is covered by patent, but that kind of, kind of operational mode is still something important to bear in mind. Um, but when it comes to other verticals in the e-commerce or retail space, then the answer might vary, right? Because, you know, if you are shipping books, but, you know, back then for Amazon, the reason they, they wanted to go with books, you know, there are many reasons, but one of them is the postage for shipping books across the United States. It's just cheap, right? But back then, if they wanted to start with uh, selling TVs or computers online, the economics would be very different when it comes to fulfillment and logistics. So just we have to treat that every single vertical carefully to understand the nature end to end. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You got to look at, you know, obviously shipping costs and and the margins to see if that actually makes sense or not in terms of vertically integrated or not. So what's one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital? Yeah, I'm definitely a big promoter of uh, diversity. I, I don't say this just because everyone else does. To me, uh, diversity is actually valuable because, you know, again, going back to the insight we constantly try to gain is that everybody, you know, whatever cultural background, you know, race, gender, we all have a unique angle. I cannot pretend that I understand everything. But when we ha- come with a different perspective, it gives us 
such insight into the opportunities that might be underlooked or underappreciated by others. And again, going back to the nature of this job, I think diversity is an important piece of success factor that is not just optional, it's a must-have. So when you think about promoting people of different race or cultural background, African-American, Hispanic, you know, Asian as well, again, we just carry that kind of a unique angle and takes a team of different backgrounds to work together to maximize the process of the chance of process to hit that kind of insight. So that's why I think it's not only for the good, but it's also going to be economically viable to promote that. So that's why whenever I have a chance, that's my only answer, even though there are many other things I can talk about, but it's something I, I feel strongly about. I completely agree when it comes to diversity. Yeah, I think you said it extremely well. So what's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? Yeah, so we have had two investments the past couple of months. You know, they are still stealth mode, so I wouldn't be able to talk much about it. But I'll pick one example to touch a couple of key points at a high level. So this is a brand new restaurant chain that carries the kind of a cultural diversity for American diners. The point here is, uh, again, when we look at uh, fast food, you know, burgers, pizza, Mexican, like Chipotle, that tells me people have already done a, such a great job in standardizing the recipe, the cooking process, the management, everything. But then when it comes to restaurants of uh, ethnic minority, again, we're talking about tens of millions of Americans with different backgrounds. And for these people, you know, you know, me as Asian included, there are so many mom and pop shops which is still fantastic. But is there an opportunity for entrepreneurs or for venture to scale from the level of you know, onesies, twosies, mom and pop shops to a national chain? I certainly think there is an opportunity. And then for the founders and for us, the way to do it is just to exactly reproduce the way how you know, McDonald's or Chipotle have done. Right, in terms of standardization, people management, scaling, tech stack. And that's the aspiration what we have in this new company. You know, there's no restaurant yet, so you know, hopefully sometime next year they will open business for either dining or pickup delivery. When Mike, when you're in the Bay Area next time, you know, after, after COVID, I'd love to take you to this restaurant. Um, and uh, the founder is just an incredible person. You know, he's been in the restaurant business for more than 15 years with lots of successful business in the past. And uh, yeah, so when he wants to do this, uh, we, we decided to back him and his team. Love it, love it. I would love to take you up on that once things get back down to normal and the restaurant opens. That sounds that sounds fantastic. Yeah, actually, one more thing onto this particular subject, I think would be hopefully helpful for the audience is, you know, because we touched on COVID. And the one question that is uncertain to everybody is what the world will look like, right? you know, whether it's related to domestic or international politics, economy, capital market, who knows, right? So my view is I don't have the crystal ball to tell, but I have to think this way. What if there is a major correction? What if there is a downturn, right? Is that going to be as bad as 2008 financial crisis? I have no idea. I'm not a medical guy. I, I hate to draw any conclusion or prediction. But if it does happen, my view is there can be all kinds of business suffering if it does happen. But when it comes to the basic necessities, of people's livelihood, right? Food, dining, you know, basic apparel, uh, shelter, you know, all those things will not go away. But even in 2008, when you know, GDP took a hit, economy took a hit, there's a still a tremendous amount of money from consumers spent on the basis of necessities. So going back to this uh, restaurant chain that we want to build, the same thing, right? You know, they are not going after the level of Michelin star rated restaurant scale. They are still just going after the quick service, fast food kind of a price tag. But obviously, we want to make this much more healthy, nutritious, tasty. So if we do face a downturn, you and I can probably should not want to go to a fancy restaurant for a dining experience, but we can probably still you know, spare 10, you know, 15 bucks on a meal, right? So that's, again, the thinking about where we see opportunities that can be somewhat more bulletproof should there be a major correction or crisis. Absolutely. I think that's a really, really good point in terms of also just how you think about opportunities and obviously the necessities that people need in order to survive and what they spend on. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Ah, I love the question. Personally, I actually, <laughs> I hope people don't laugh about this, uh, but I do 
love Harry Potter book series. I just love it, right?、Um, I actually read the first book. I think exactly 20 years ago,、uh, when I was still a grad student in Chicago, I was already older for the target age group. But one thing I felt strongly about the Harry book series is about friendship, right? Harry Potter, Hermione, Ron—you know—they bonded during the seven years at Hogwarts. They fought the evils. They grew personally, and、um, it's phenomenal. And then when I think about life, career, and everything, just like Harry Potter and his friends, it's like a shared journey. When we work with founders, some. Investors say this is like a marriage, but I just say, hey, this is a shared journey, right? We grow together, we help each other through the ups and downs, and that actually, to me, adds a lot of meaningfulness to my own journey that I like to share with others. And then professionally, there are、uh, so many books. I love listening to audibles when I you know work out or take a walk. But one book I think that can be helpful to the audience and、uh, other you know friends in, in my network is this book by Malcolm Gladwell. You know, he is the You know this famous author, New York Times bestseller. He wrote so many books, like uh, Outlier and the Tipping Point, and so on and so forth. But my particular book I really recommend is called David and Goliath. It's about underdogs, misfits, and the art of battling giants. Right. So I don't want to spoil the story here, but basic idea is David and Goliath when they fought. Right. David, you know, people know the story. I'm not going to repeat it. But David didn't fight Goliath by you know, overnight, you know, getting himself a overdose of、uh, a protein, right, <laughs> to build a stronger, bigger muscle to fight Goliath. But he found a different way to attack, and he won. But when you take it beyond this story to military battle, sports competition, and business world, right? Often the underdogs win the competition, not because they suddenly found a better way to outnumber or outfight, but really it's about a different playbook people have to develop. Right. So I, I apply this analogy even to iFly. You know, I don't mind being called an underdog. What's wrong with that, right?、And、maybe some people don't like being called that way, but okay, let's face it. I, I just say iFly is an underdog before we are even considered a winner in anything. But in that regard, we have to come back to think about what is the playbook that iFly. So that goes back to early conversation we just had, right? So it gives us a sense what not to do and what we should focus on and excel. And the same thing, you know, it applies to startups. As well, so that that's a book. You know, it's a very easy, quick read. But to me, it is actually inspirational, and、uh, it also helps validate a lot of the practice that I've seen. It also helps me think about a future direction of iFi as well. First of all, you're the first person that brought up Harry Potter, and I am so glad you did. <laughs> so glad, and I also love the message that you took away from it, which is friendship. I think that's you know sometimes overlooked by people, and and it's just so so important. Especially you know we all get wrapped up in investing and whatnot, but it's really about relationships, not the transactions as well. And Malcolm Gladwell, he's been brought up a couple times, and is already featured a couple times on the book list that we have going. But I think you're the first person that recommended David and Goliath, which I thought that was terrific. That's a really powerful story, and and I agree. There's nothing wrong in saying that you're. An underdog, or even just thinking of yourself as an underdog, I think you become a lot more driven if you're thinking about the world like that. To be honest, so my final question is: What's one piece of advice that you have for founders? That's also a great question. Gosh, you know, Mike, you have a lot of great questions. <laughs> I think that's why people love、uh, subscribing to your podcast. I'll say this way: You know, instead of saying this is advice to other founders, I'll say this is a kind of a reminder for me as well. I'll just very openly say this, and I. I Hanshan am the worst bottleneck of iFly, right? You think about it, the way how I strategize investment approach here at iFly, how I manage my time 24/7, how I recruit my colleagues and grow the team and manage portfolio and help my team members grow as well. So all these sort of things really affect how iFly collectively grows as a fund. As a team, so usually when I say that, I will say the following to founders: Say,、hey, look, you are also the bottleneck of your startup. And some people say,、uh, Hey, Han, are you are you sure you want to be that harsh? Can you say something more positive? I thought about it, but I decided to stick to that question and statement using the word bottleneck because it it helps people, you know, recognize that importance. I think that achieves my goal, right? So nobody is born. To be a CEO of a Fortune 500 company for a startup founder, when you manage a small team, sometimes one or two, maybe even just yourself with a couple of friends, to a point that you don't recognize everybody's names on your team. But how how you set the course of 
the company's growth, how you pick partnership, how you hire people, recruit people, and grow people. Same thing, right? So that's why I want to constantly remind people that uh, if we don't want to become a bottleneck of our, each of our own organization, we just have to keep on learning and educating ourselves and build a support group of uh, advisors formally or informally and be very hungry seeking advice and turn that into a sound judgment, turn that into a sound practice day to day. So in that regard, I recognize the importance. So I actually even brought in some of our LPs to hold office hours with our founders as well. And our fund has a bunch of these tech entrepreneurs that are so successful. I mean, even though they are not running company, they do their own personal investment or fund investment. But every time when I got someone to say, hey, I, I, I want to invest in iFly, my response is always, oh, yeah, thank you very much. I don't only want to thank you for your money, but I also can I ask for your time? Uh, they always said, yes, that's fantastic. So I'm also trying to bring such resource and the people network to share the way how those founders build companies. Because collectively, the uh, founders that uh, invest in our fund, the total capital market cap of the companies they created in the past now is over $900 billion. So just imagine the amount of knowledge, insights, and the network that they can bring to help our founders. So going back to that kind of a reminder rather than just as pure advice, I still want to share that with other people. And that's also why I listen to your podcast. I want to learn from other VCs, you know, friends. Actually, I know a lot of the people who appear on your podcast, and they give me lots of wisdom and insights that are also fresh. So that's my answer to your question. I think you touched on a number of really great points. I mean, it reminds me too, when you talk about the fellow that wanted to invest in iFly and you said, can we have a conversation? I think that kind of goes back to your point about Harry Potter, that it's really about, you know, friendships. It's about, you know, friendships over, you know, the transactions. Transactions are great and also necessary, but friendships are even more important no matter where you work. And I think as a founder, it seems as well that you alluded to, I think it's always keep searching and always keep searching for advice. At the same time, it's also developing new relationships as well and making sure that you're doing that. That's excellent. Well said. Thank you for that. Well, Han, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. This is a blast. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mike. You know, it's uh, such a great pleasure doing this podcast with you. And I look forward to your future episodes with other founders and investors as well. And there you have it. Han, thank you again so much for your time. You can follow Han on Twitter at underscore Han underscore Shen underscore. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at Consumer VC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe. Oh.